Brief note, tonight is not going to be a normal sermon. Uh, this is going to be what uh, we call a biographical sermon. So I didn't carry my Bible up here, and I feel like a soldier without a sword. That seems really funny. But we will be uh, dealing with Scripture as uh, Patrick laid it out for us. But let's go ahead and pray as we begin. Lord Almighty, you are glorious. Speak to us, your people tonight. Lord, give us courage. Let us know you, and because we know you as the sovereign God over all of nature, we will be able to trust you and love you and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I was dating this cute brunette, really pretty girl, and she told me that she would never have snakes in her house. There would be never any idea. At the, at the time, she was periodically house-sitting for a friend of ours, mutual friend of ours at, at the church, until the day he brought home an albino corn snake. Cute little guy. He lived in this little aquarium sitting on his kitchen counter. I mean, there was plenty of, it was a huge kitchen too. You can go all around this kitchen and not go on that counter. Well, periodically you needed to drop, you know, one of those little baby mice in there. And so this cute brunette just would not do it. So I got the job. It was great. Now see, I grew up going out in the desert with my dad. I've seen literally dozens of rattlesnakes. Snakes don't bother me. I've even seen, I had pictures of all this, but I don't have someone to show it, so I'm sorry, you don't get slides tonight. I've even seen a Mojave Green, which is a relatively uh, scarce snake, and it is also the deadliest snake in North America. It was really cool. I had this great idea. Never mind. I've caught snakes with my bare hands. I've even uh, seen many TV shows about snakes, and I always like it when they come on. But I have to watch them on my iPad because Donna's like, no, that's not even going on my TV. <laughs> once, when <I> was <laughs> once when I was living at the orphanage down in Mexico, uh, I was there for the summer, the troublemakers, I mean the boys that I was watching, uh, were down in this flotsam over by the arroyo, and vipura, vipura! So, you know, the, the other American and I come running down, oh Lord, please don't have bitten one of these kids. And we, we're looking, they're, they're all just like huddled around this pile of wood, and they're looking in there, and I'm like, get away from there! And I look in, and I know that I saw a coral snake. Only about that much of it but the coral snake is the second deadliest poison in North America. So. But because this beautiful girl rescinded her off, offer for house-sitting for Mike, I got the job, was paid handsomely for it, and quickly married her because I figured this was going to be a good deal. But 25 years later or so, 20, however many, um, still stands. And she claims biblical grounds for it. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the snake and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel. 
So how do I argue with that? Well, I don't. And it's okay, we don't have snakes and we have survived. But since I'm at least one-eighth Irish and due to the fact that St. Patrick's most famous miracle, the legend of him casting the snakes into the sea, is what makes Patty famous, St. Patrick is Donna's patron saint and I'm okay with that. Patricius, as he was probably called as a child, was born the son of a noble. He was born in a villa, most likely somewhere along the coast of northwest England. And he was almost 16 years old when he was invaded by Irish pirates and taken into slavery. And he was there as a shepherd on this lonely, frozen mountain for six years. Now, we know at least this much because of the two writings that we have from the hand of Patrick. The first actual biography about Patrick was written some 200 years after his death. And so all of the things that we like to think about included in a biography are, for the most part, just flat missing. We really don't know what year he was born in. We really don't know what year he died in. We really don't know what town he was born in and a whole lot of other things. But the great thing is, all of the truly important things about the man, we know very clearly because he told us them in his confessions and we have a lot of other facts about him, both from other people who wrote and from the historians who told us things that we can kind of sift through and get rid of the miracle stories, but understand who this man really was. Patrick was born in the last quarter of the 4th century, that's the 300 ADs, and an interesting theory puts his birth at 385. And Stay with me here because I think this is interesting, so I'm going to bore you with it. He was approximately 16 when he was taken as captive, and he was captive, he was a slave, for six years. So if we say that his birth is approximately 385, and you do some math, when you get to the story when he escapes slavery, and he's gone for two more years in France, there's this interesting side note. He tells the story about how when they landed in France, they never saw a single person for 28 days. And you think, now come on. That part, that region of the world has been continuously habited for millennia. There, there had to have been somebody there that you can walk around for 28 days and find somebody. Well, history tells us that in 407 AD, a particular Germanic tribe went on this raid and murdered or kidnapped everybody in this particular region of France and took them back to Germany. Is that where Patrick landed when he landed? It very well may be. It might not. Also, there might be another explanation. But it just is so wonderful that when you actually get into the history of these things, you can start to put these things together. Praise Jesus. Now, of course, 
and you're watching these, these different documentaries and you're reading these different books. My favorite one was they had about five different scholars about Patrick come on, on the video and they said, you know, where was Patrick born, blah, blah, blah. Where was Patrick died, blah, blah, blah. And they go through these different guys and the, finally the last one is a Catholic priest and he says, well, we'll just have to ask him when we get there. And I thought, you know what, that I am perfectly okay with that. But if, if this is right, then that puts Patrick's return to Ireland approximately 430 A.D. Now, if you're paying attention, that makes him about 40, 45 years old. And in the late 4th, early 5th century, that's an old guy. I'm sorry, don't be offended everybody here, but 45 years old in 430 AD in Northern Europe puts him at an old guy. Nevertheless, he decides to leave the Roman Empire and go to the barbarians because he knows and loves Jesus. If you get nothing else out of tonight, be ready to leave the Roman Empire and go witness to the barbarians because you know and love Jesus. One biographical fact that we can reasonably put our fingers on is he died on March 17th in approximately the year 460. That makes him a very old man, but it also is what we know because March 17th became St. Patty's Day, and we don't want to venerate anybody, but we are commanded several times in scriptures to emulate or to imitate the godly men and women who have gone before us. So, while the accidents of one's birth and death are important, they are important, what is Truly important is the disposition of the soul. It is the carrying of oneself in one's heart and how our hearts change throughout Christ's dealing with us. What we call sanctification or becoming more and more like Christ. Learning to know and trust the promises of God for us in Christ is really the only interesting story there really ultimately is. And it's the only story that we're going to be telling when we get to heaven because we're going to be celebrating what the Lord did for us. So, what besides this, what can we say about Patrick? There are several things that I would love to say about Patrick, but... He was the first of several things. Patrick was the very first missionary, Christian missionary, to a barbarian people. Now you say, wait a minute, what about Paul? Paul is traveling through uh, modern-day Turkey, probably made it all the way to Spain, but all of that was Roman Empire. Well, what about Thomas? Thomas went to India. Even if we say that Thomas went to India and that legend is in fact true, India was ruled by a heavy hand by the people of that time. And so he never really left civilization. 
When Patrick went to Ireland, he was the first person to leave everything he knew and go to a people who had zero ability to know anything about Jesus. So what did he do? He went to Ireland and he would go when he went to Ireland, sorry, back up. When he went to Ireland, he went and there were five kingdoms. And these five kingdoms in these 26 counties of what was then Ireland, each king then kind of offered his allegiance to the king at Tara. Tara was the capital and he was the, the high king. But the high king stayed in power because he made his lesser kings happy, basically, is what they did. And each of these other lesser kings were king because they made their warlord chieftains happy. And basically, you never really could tell. You're not making us happy, so we're going to put you on a gibbet and hang you outside the wall so everybody can see what happens when people don't make us happy. And evidently, it frequently happened. And not only that, not only was the political just confusion and the only real non-confusion there was because we have a bigger sword than you do but on the other hand you had the druids and the druids were this uh, spiritist animist culture this religion that was brutal I mean they were brutal to each other and would just go and take captives and murder them and sacrifice them it was awful. And this is where Patrick went. He got on a boat with 12 to 15 of his closest friends, and what he planned to do was to go to each village, and as he would go to this village, he would seek first to convert the chieftain, to convert the warlord at the time, and if he couldn't convert him, he would at least bribe him or get some permission so that he can park outside the village and build what ended up being a church or a monastery, depending on how you're looking at it, and try to win the people. He would stay there for a while, and as Patrick was in this little village, what he would do is he would take two or three of the people who were with him, and he would leave them at the village, and he would get two or three people from the village and take them with him to the next one. And thus, what he was doing was constantly bringing people, the indigenous people, to Christ by God's grace and bringing them along, making disciple, making disciples. And this was one of his geniuses. Another first for Patrick is he was the first missionary to write and speak against slavery, unequivocally. You know, it's strange. Evidently, I mean, I take it from Paul. Paul didn't like slavery. But Paul kind of took it as a political de facto reality. This is how the Roman Empire works. Get your freedom if you can. We want you to be free. But that's not the most important thing. A story uh, at this particular time in these years, as Patrick is becoming an older guy, so it's the mid, early mid 400s now, the, what there was of a central authority of Roman rule in northern England was quickly crumbling. 
And so these warlord kings in England would kind of start taking power. Well, if you're a warlord king, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to try to make your people happy. And one good way of making them happy is to go on these raids, kidnap people, and bring them back as slaves. And so that's what this one king did. And he went, and when he got to Ireland, the work was already growing, and people were were becoming Christians and God was just really blessing the place. And this warlord king in northern England came and took a bunch of Patrick's people back to England as slaves. And so Patrick writes this famous letter. It's the one of two things we have from Patrick's pen that we are reasonably sure is. And he says, you guys are dead wrong. You guys are so dead wrong. You got to stop taking slaves. And he's the first person. It's amazing that it took 400 years, but there you have it. And so he came out unequivocally and emphatically without reservation to condemn slavery. But the other kind of strange thing that Patrick did as a first in some senses, not, not, in, not completely new. But Paul would go into these various places and he would go into Galatia and he would plant a church. He'd go into Kencray and he would plant a church. And, and that, that, was, that, that was fine. But what Patrick did, because he left all semblance of civilization that he understood it, behind him. What he did is he would come into this town and he would establish, the word is what became the word monastery, but what you have to understand is in the 400s, monastery is not what we think of as a later medieval monastery. These were not a bunch of dudes sitting around without wives and kids praying all day, five times a day. This was essentially Bob over here, who is a shepherd and a farmer, was, would come back to the monastery, and he was learning. It was a school. It wasn't a university, but it was a school. And then Bob the shepherd would then later on, because he'd been there for a number of years, teach Tom the shepherd Greek and, and other things that were just amazing. And so he, they would build these what do you call them? They, they were called what we now call monasteries, but they were more kind of like, oh, a church. A church that was very intentional. A church that was very intentional about changing the world around them. About sharing the love of Jesus with people who would just as soon put a spear through you as listen to the good news of Jesus Christ. Not hard to imagine that a culture might get that way. And it's not hard to imagine people who know and love and trust Jesus would do the same thing and praise Jesus for his courage. Patrick was a man of courage. So those are kind of several of the first. Now I would like to kind of describe Patrick what do we know about him as a human being from mostly from his writings, mostly from the confession? By the way, if you have any kind of electronic computer device, you can get Kindle. 
The Kindle program app is free. And if you go on the Amazon.com where you buy the stuff that gets put on Kindle, the version of his confession that I like the most is the one that costs $1.48. There's like five of them that are 99 cents. The one that's $1.48 is a really good one if you're interested. And if you do get that, don't tell anybody that I'm basically stealing a lot of his stuff. Well, and that's what I wanted to do anyways is steal St. Patty's stuff. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm looking at this. Those, that's not my notes. What happened? <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. Patrick was a mystic. If you read Patrick's confessions, one of the things that will absolutely stand out to you is that he believed frequently God would speak directly to him. Now, what's interesting about this is usually when he's talking about this, he's not talking about God the Father standing in front of his bed and speaking directly to him like that. But God sends messengers to speak to Patrick and give him very specific instructions as to what he would do. The most famous of which, of course, is the time he's out on this lonely, frozen, pardon the expression, God-forsaken hillside shepherding these sheep. But what I love about the phrase God-forsaken is there's no such thing. There is no such thing. Later on in his story, he talks about people mocking him and saying, where's your God, Christian? And I don't know that this happened, but I could easily imagine somebody saying, where's your God? This is a God-forsaken hillside. You'll never get rescued. Guess what? God shows up. And he tells Patrick, your redemption is nigh. And he tells him, go. And so Patrick starts walking 200 miles. Now, the great thing about this is an escaped slave walking 200 miles, humanly speaking, can't do that. I, I mean, that's, that's impossible. People are going to see him. And they're going to say, dude, you're an escaped slave. And they're either going to make him their slave, or they're going to figure out a way to get him back to the other guy so they can get some money, Right? But he does it, and he makes it all the way to this boat. And he has this adventure, which eventually, two years later, gets him home. So I have a question. I'm a good Baptist, and who, who am I to say that Patrick didn't have these visions? Who am I to say that Patrick was delusional about all this and he didn't really have these. Now, the other side of that coin is I think it would be foolish to advise somebody, you need to pay attention to visions. You, you need, you need to, to trust visions so that you will make your decisions according to God. That, that's ridiculous. Because if we know anything about Satan, Satan, the preeminent liar, can imitate quite a few things, and you don't want to live like that. But my God is supernatural. My God can do whatever isn't contradictory to himself. Who am I to say that Patrick didn't have these? I will say the vast majority of Bible-believing Christ 
honoring Christians have not lived their lives like this. And I think it is bad advice to seek that. But God gives us normal means to pursue. And evidently he gave Patrick visions. But the proof is in the pudding. Patrick didn't accomplish normal everyday things. By one estimate, he and or his followers, because it really wasn't sure how, how it was worded, in his lifetime baptized 100,000 Irishmen. Now, let's say his ministry there was 25 years. 100,000 Irishmen. That's something only God can do. So, if, if we say that, we also see that because of these visions, Patrick grew one very crucial way. Patrick knew God. Patrick knew him. Not just, you know, oh, come to know Jesus. Not just, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Patrick knew God. He didn't just pray to God. Patrick knew God because he gives, and he gives direct, um, uh, he says this is what happened is because he was six years as a slave and he had absolutely nothing else. This is a quote from one of his biographers. Patrick understands his slavery as the door into divine recognition and friendship. This awful experience of alienation and exile, in it he discovers God as his, I love this, Anamkara. Anam is the Irish word for soul and kara is the word for friend. Remember I, I challenged you guys? I said, go back through your life and come up with your own name for God. Just like many of the Bible-believing people did in the Bible. God my witness, the one who sees. God my provider, God my banner. Patrick called him his Anamkara, his soul friend. This is one of the most beautiful concepts of the Celtic tradition, an ancient affinity and belonging awakened between two people in the Anamkara relationship. This relationship cut across all other connections. In your Anamkara, you discovered the other in whom your heart could be at home. Prayer is conversation with Patrick's Anamkara. Now, of course, it's also true that we're fat, dumb, and happy in the United States. We're not slaveries on some frozen hill on northwestern Ireland. Patrick knew God fully because he had nothing but God. Now, of course, Patrick's mysticism spared him many of the other problems that later plagued the church. When you read his confession, you will find Scripture in good measure, pressed down and shaken over and running over. And you won't find anything remotely what we now call as Catholic. In fact, Patrick spends more time in his confession defending himself because he views himself as so deficient in learning, in education, that he has to say, yeah, yeah but, but God is amazing and he is working through me. Lord, I don't need my education if I can have you working through me. 
Uh, one of my many trips when I were going to Mexico all the time, I had an opportunity to meet a man who had a sixth grade education in Tijuana, Mexico. And this was years and years later. He came to Christ. He was saved out of all the, the terrible things that were going on in the bar culture of, Me of Tijuana, Mexico. And I was sitting there listening to this guy with his sixth grade education. Here I had a master's degree just catching my breath because the insights the Lord had given him because he had found his Anamkara and was with him in the deserts of Mexico. Praise Jesus. Another thing that we learn about Patrick is he was stronger than the Blarney Stone. I was going to get into the Blarney Stone, but I'm running out of time. Listen to this quote. I love this. Wherefore, for this reason... I give unceasing thanks to God who preserved me faithful in the day of my temptation so that I can this day confidently offer up my soul as a living sacrifice to Christ my Lord who preserved me from all my troubles so that I may say, Who am I, O Lord? Or what is my calling that thou hast granted me such, so much of the, your divine presence? I love this. Day of my... My temptation. What is he talking about? Well, we know he was a slave at least three times. We know that he was threatened to be murdered dozens of times. Day of his temptation. What? That's every day of his life once he made it to Ireland. So that at this day, and this is very near the end of his life, I can constantly rejoice among the nations and magnify your name wherever I may be, not only in prosperity, but in adversity, teaching me that I ought to accept with a contented mind whatever may befall me, whether good or evil, and always to give thanks to God, who showed me that I should believe in him forever without doubting, and who heard me, though that although I am ignorant, I should in these last days attempt to undertake so a holy and wonderful a work so that I should imitate those who in the long who the Lord long since foretold should preach the gospel. What is he saying here? That was a long quote. I'm sorry. That was, that was like a Pauline sentence. It went on for 10 lines. What is he saying here? He's saying that he can rejoice because the Lord is using him to bring people to Christ in spite of his slavement, in spite of being beaten and cast out, in spite of spending six years in the cold. That I should speak the gospel for a witness to all the nations before the end of the world, which has been so accomplished as we have seen. So we are witnesses that the gospel has been preached up to the limits of human habitation. That what we call the civilized world. The Lord is bringing the gospel wherever he goes. We also see that Patrick was as fierce as a wolverine. I love that image. Patrick uh, had been in Ireland evidently for some time by this time, and he was already, he already gotten to know the culture that was around him. And one of the cultural things that they did is every June 24th especially but other times of the year the Druids would have this massive bonfire and I mean ones that would make our Midwest high school football bonfires look like you know nothing but you couldn't have a bonfire without the Druids permission 
Well, it was Easter. And so Patrick was pretty excited about Easter, I guess. I'm imagining this part. And he says, we're going to have a bonfire. So he gets all this wood and he gets it. And he has the biggest bonfire in the world. And of course, the Druids hate this. They hate Patrick. And so they're going to get him to go before the big king, the king at Tara, the, the one who well, easily could have just chopped off his head. So Patrick marches in in front of this king and he preaches the gospel to him. But the king at Tara says, I don't care. You're going to go to hell. I don't know about you, but that just strikes me as enormously courageous. And he's telling this story later, and he's like, yeah, I didn't think I was ever going to get out the room. I was, I was pretty sure that I was getting ready to go see Jesus right then. But he didn't. Now, the king didn't repent. The king, evidently, at least at that time, didn't come to know Jesus. But Patrick was fearless. And just spoke the gospel right to the king's face. Listen to this quote. I pray God that he may grant me perseverance. And that he may vouchsafe to me. He may uh, deign to give me. To permit me to bear faithful witness to him. Even unto my death. And if I ever affected anything good on account of my God whom I love, I entreat God to grant me this, that with those converts and captives I may pour out my blood for his name, even though I should be deprived of burial, or my dead body may be miserably torn limb from limb by dogs or wild beasts, although the birds are there, he keeps on going. And he's talking about all the bad that can happen to him when he dies. And he says, for without any doubt, we shall rise one day in the brightness of the sun. That is the glory of Christ Jesus, our Redeemer. The sun was the chief thing that the Druids worshipped. And so he often, he makes a play on that. And if you notice, the Celtic cross is a cross with the sun on it. And he did that on purpose as well. And he does this for the glory of Christ, our Redeemer, the Son of the living God. So that we are joint heirs with Christ and so that we may be conformed to his image, since of him and through him and to him we shall reign. For that sun which we see rises daily at God's will for our sake, but it shall not rule forever, nor shall his splendor continue. And woe to its unhappy worshipers, for punishment awaits them. But we believe in and adore the true Son, Christ, who shall never perish, nor shall he who does his will, but shall abide forever as Christ shall also abide forever, who will reign with God, the Father of omnipotence, and with the Holy Ghost, who in the beginning is now and shall ever be. Amen. Oh my goodness, encourage your hearts, my friends. Go and spend $1.48, get his confessions. It takes you about 20 minutes to read through his confession and it will encourage your soul because there's scripture just trapped through it. And for evidence of that, let me read one paragraph. I love, he's preaching a sermon here and he gives his big idea right at the beginning of the sermon. Listen for his big idea. Therefore, we ought to fish well and diligently. And I'm going to tell you why you should fish well and diligently. As the Lord tells us when he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And again, he says by the prophets, behold, I send you as many fishers and hunters, says the Lord. 
Wherefore, there is great need for this reason. There is great need that we should so set our nets that a vast assemblage and multitude may be caught unto God, that there may be everywhere clergy to baptize and exhort a people who need and desire it as the Lord admonishes and teaches us in the gospel. In other words, make disciple making disciples. And then he says, as the Lord teaches us, go therefore and teach all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I have commanded you. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. That, by the way, is the third scripture in this paragraph. And again, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all the nations and then the end shall come and again the Lord speaking by the prophet says and it shall come to pass afterwards that I shall pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions and also upon the servants and upon the housemaids in those days I will pour out my spirit and he said he says in Hosea Seventh Bible passage. I will call her my people which has not been my people and have mercy on her that has not obtained mercy. And it shall come to pass in that place where it was said of them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the children of the living God. Now here is his big application. For this reason, behold how the Irish who never had the knowledge of God and hitherto worshipped only idols and unclean things have lately become the people of God and are called the sons of God. He had a faith that would not quit. And even if they were going to tear him to bits, even if they were going to hang him on a gibbet, even if they were going to burn him at the stake, he was going to tell them about the love of God. So, he's with the king of Terah. He just told the high king of Ireland, you're going to go to hell because you're not listening to the gospel. The king lets him out. So, he starts walking, and what does he do? He's got his 12 or 15 guys in trail behind him, and he wants to make it over to this other side of the island. And he hires 12 armed guards to walk with him. What? You just, you just stood toe-to-toe with the king and now you want to hire some people to, to, to guard you while you walk across a couple of counties? Well, you know, when Paul came to Christ in Damascus, what did they do? They lowered him in a basket outside the city walls. Why? So that he wouldn't die. But then when he gets stoned perhaps to death, and the Lord raises him back up, what does he do? He marches right back into town. So, is it the Lord's will that you always just march fearlessly into death? Sometimes. Might it be the Lord's will that you get out of Dodge so you don't get burned or stabbed or stoned or shot to death? Sometimes. But what happens? He goes to the county of Mayo. Notice it's Mayo, not Mayo. And as he is walking across to this county, he sees this mountain in the distance and he decides that he needs to go and worship the Lord on this mountain. This mountain is called Kruachan Eichle, 
that sounded more German than Irish, sorry. But it would be Mount Eagle would be what that was called. And so uh, up at the top of this mountain, uh, while he was going up, this enormous cloud of birds came along. And these birds kind of descended upon Patrick. Now, one of the interesting things about the Druid religion is they don't like birds. Birds, in one sense, represent the demonic. And so they hate this. And so I, I can imagine, again, sanctified imagination. I wasn't there. They're looking up there. Wow, Patrick is going up this mountain. And there's 8 billion birds up there. He's probably getting eaten alive by one of our Druid gods. Patrick banishes the birds. They're gone. They, they beat it for some reason. God just tells the birds, get up and go fly somewhere else. And so they do. But to these druids who were looking up at the top, Patrick just won a major war against the forces of the, of the demonic, what we would call the demonic. Now Patrick was probably like, man, get these birds away. Jeez, they're bothering me. I'm trying to pray here. He probably didn't know anything about it. But... In their imagination, that's what happened. So time goes on, and, and you can imagine, again, we're using sanctified imagination. I'm not saying it necessarily had to have happened this way, but this is the story that I read. Well, what else represents the demonic? Well, reptiles do. Snakes do. And what is now called Mount Patrick, Kruach Eichle, sits right above the Atlantic Ocean on the west side of Ireland. And so the story gets up that he won this major victory against the demonic forces and it kind of just changes over time and he sends all of the snakes into the sea. Is that what happened? I have no idea. But it, the trip across did the fact that he did in fact pay people to get him there and the fact that he told his people man I love you so much that I was willing to pay for these armed guards to get me so I can come to you all of that did in fact happen and I believe in a supernatural God who can take the superstitions of this group of people and use it for his glory and Patrick did indeed win a major victory over the demonic forces because he knew and therefore loved and trusted his Savior. The end of that last quote that I read. Wherefore, for this reason, behold, look, see, pay attention how the Irish who never had knowledge of God and from past until now, worshipped only idols and unclean things, have lately become the people of the Lord and are called the sons of God. I challenge you. Take Irish out of that sentence and put someone that you don't think can come to Christ. Put someone's name that you don't think God can save. Or put some group of people. Abortionists, maybe. Put, put somebody's name in that sentence and say, Lord, you used Patrick to bring a barbarian people to Christ. Use me 
to be your instruments to bring this person to Christ. Because if God can save my dad, if he can save my father's son, that's what I was, if he can save my father's son, he can save anybody, even my dad. And right now, that's what I'm praying for. And you have somebody in your life that needs to be saved. You know somebody that it's impossible by human standards to save. I challenge you, take courage from Patrick. Take courage from Patrick's Savior and pray that person and ask the Lord. This is what I pray for my dad very often. Lord, let me rejoice at seeing you bring him to yourself. And Lord, I pray that for my brothers and sisters here. May we have Patrick's courage because we know Patrick's God. May we know you and therefore love you and trust you. And Lord, for all the stories and for all the drunken revelry that comes because of our sinful tendency to to keep making idol factories in our hearts, Lord, let us reject that. But let us not reject the man that you used so mightily. And Lord, let us so live that we may see you using us for your glory, for our joy, and for the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.